Welcome to season two of Unstoppable Minds, a University of Florida podcast that looks at the big challenges we face in the world and how members of the UF community boldly tackle them. I'm Dr. Kyla McMullen, an assistant professor of computer and information science and engineering at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And I'm Dr. Jeremy Waysom, a lecturer in the engineering education department in the Herbert Wertheim College of Engineering. Big discoveries don't happen without overcoming formidable challenges. So we're sitting down with some of our colleagues at UF who are leading the way in identifying creative solutions in research, student success, and academic exploration in their unstoppable quest for knowledge. Hello, this is Steve Orlando, Assistant Vice President for Communications at the University of Florida, and your guest host today on Unstoppable Minds. I am uh, honored to be joining Dr. Phoebe Stubblefield, a research assistant scientist at the University of Florida and forensic anthropologist. Oh, thank you. I'm pleased to be here. It's good to see you. I wanted to, to start off by asking you if you would uh, share with everybody a little bit of your background, just so people understand uh, what it is you do exactly for people who may not be totally familiar with forensic anthropology and what it's all about. So I came to forensic anthropology uh, in the 90s. Um, what forensic anthropology is, is telling the story of the skeleton, usually human, but not always in the context of a legal question. And so the legal question can be a criminal question. You know, how was the person killed if it's a person or what happened to the animal if it's an animal involved like poaching or uh, neglect? Here in Florida, most of my activity involves criminal questions. Uh, how did the person die? Mm -hmm. Who are they? Can you confirm their identity or even give us a location to search or a clue where to search? And uh, not so much the civil rights until the Tulsa investigation, mm -hmm. except technically I was already involved in that. So since you mentioned um, the, the Tulsa race massacre, I want to ask you if you would, for anyone who may not have heard the first episode where you were a guest, if you could sort of just give a, a brief background of what the 1921 Tulsa race massacre was um, and then talk about the work that's currently being conducted at that site. So uh, the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre is also known as the Greenwood Disaster or the Tulsa Disaster or the Greenwood Massacre. Uh, what happened in 1921, the nutshell version, because I do recommend reading a detailed history. Um, there's a book called The Tulsa Disaster that's an eyewitness account. Mary Parrish is the author. It's uh, like... Um, it's a special collections type book, so you'd have to you get a PDF, but I do recommend reading that version, her version. But uh, it's a common story how it started. So uh, a black man was accused of assaulting a white female teenager, and she was an elevator operator. Uh, he was using the elevator. He gets arrested. Um, the white male townspeople, I mean, not all of them. These are, because history is such a story of lumping, but... Uh, there were enough white males that got together that said, we're just going to lynch him. And keep in mind that at the time, lynching was a popular mode of addressing uh, social outrages. It was mm -hmm. very common and very popular. And if you look, it's still not a federal crime. It's still handled on the state level, which is fatiguing to me. But mm. that's another story. Mm. So um, at any rate, there was a gathering uh, outside the um, courthouse or sheriff's Several black males heard about the plans to lynch, 
And these were uh, veterans from the First World War, and they had experienced what it meant to be citizens, actual citizens of the U.S., and then come back to Tulsa, where they were not citizens. Hmm. And they said that they gathered to resist this lynching. And things, you know, it, it didn't happen right away, but eventually there was a confrontation uh, between, a, a, reportedly between an older white gentleman and one of the veterans. And he said, I'm taking your gun. And uh, then the shot was fired and the rest was a, that first night, uh, May 31st, it was a, a gun campaign that mainly went against the white shooters because they were approaching the Greenwood area in the dark and the Greenwood heroes had retreated to there and were uh, barricaded and set up to snipe and were able to <clears throat> defend in the dark, but they could not defend against better numbers, aircraft, and daylight. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in the daylight, the white Tolsons came back and did a systematic program of entering black homes in the Greenwood area, seizing men, sending the women and children to one of the three internment camps in the area, and then robbing the house and setting it on fire. Now, this was an, a relatively affluent area, as I understand it. Yeah, Greenwood was an economic zone because uh, Tulsa itself was an oil boom town. And that economy, the oil boom economy, affected blacks and whites. And it's just the whites had the more techno technological, te technological end of it, mm -hmm. like the airplanes. Well, probably crop dusters were still airplanes sure. and um, oil equipment and the money there from while the blacks were providing a lot of the services, a lot of them were porters and uh, uh, house staff and and as a result of that, but they were house staff that they lived, their homes were in Greenwood because if you read Mary Parrish's account, a lot of the people got out of the internment camps because their white employer came and got them. Mm -hmm. And that was the only way they could get out. And Mary Parrish notes, I, I'm an adult, when have I ever needed a white person to account for me hmm. when, and it was that reversal of citizenship, yeah. you know, or even personhood to a degree that occurred in those three days. So how many, how many individuals died during those three days? Documented from the newspaper. We only have 39. Uh, a lot of them are white and, um, the actual number of blacks, black, they were all male, black male deaths. 18 that we know about from the paper because mm -hmm. they were buried or not because they were buried, but because they, their bodies ended up in funeral homes, two funeral homes in Tulsa. Um, so we know people were injured, a variety of people were injured, but we only have those first few recorded deaths and all through the funeral home. So our estimate of the number dead exceeds that based on Mary Parrish's account of just how many people she saw struggling to get out of town and and yet there are planes flying overhead shooting and mm -hmm. um her thought was the number that the number is higher okay um Tulsa also had systematic door to door destruction and uh with this reportedly machine gun and uh aircraft hmm. and flying overhead with some arguing over what was coming out of the aircraft, but certainly bullets. And mm -hmm. so between men and women and whole families were uh, fleeing on foot. Mm -hmm. So in that context, I go, well, I think we're missing some dead. So what do you, at this point, 
of of your work now what is your what is your primary goal with your research going forward uh trying to reconnect all of the remains to any of their uh descendants or at least get them placed again within their history cuz many of them were veterans and i want to remove that context as well i mean with my colleagues i want to remove the context of them having been stashed as criminals because they were buried as criminals not as uh people defending their home mm-hmm. or defending the right of uh, a uh, suspect to have a fair trial, which is how this started. And uh, literally from the papers, they're buried in that context. And that's mm. just not appropriate. And part of telling that story will, you know, my analysis will go a long way to saying who who they were from the stories of their skeleton, at least as I say that, not knowing how well preserved their skeletons will be. Mm-hmm. But uh, even to how did they die? We have a lot of reports of abdominal gunshot wounds. Uh, we'll see if that shows up on the skeleton. But there's also a lot of burning. And we don't know if the remains were burned after the person had been shot or if they were caught in a fire or what the context was. There's even an image of one of the individuals burned uh, thoroughly into the pugilistic pose, we call it. And uh, that image survived. But uh, I want to be able to tell all of that story for the people of Tulsa because we need to have the whole, uh, because especially because of the suppression, the whole story available in case another round of, oh, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And I find it more important even now because it's just problematic, you know, the the way truth is. Well, I want to go. I want to go. I want to go down that road with you for just a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, you yourself are a descendant of one of the survivors. Yeah, I'm a niece, great niece mm-hmm. of uh, Anna Woods. Mm-hmm. She was the wife of uh, Ellis Walker Woods, who was the principal of Booker T. Washington High School and leader of part of the recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was running the field hospital because it was his high school. And um, he was, uh, he was, the guy was an encourager. So I learned of uh, their loss. They lost their home. Anna and I lost her home in the riot. And I learned that when I first joined the uh, race, back then race riot investigation in the 19, late 1990s. So really, I think of it as 2000, but 99, <laughs> 98, uh, when the conversations first started uh, about the investigation. And I said, hey, you know, to my parents, uh, you know, I'm going to help with this investigation and analyze the skeletal remains we find. And uh, my mother says, oh, your Aunt Anna lost her house. So and you didn't even know until you were an adult. You grew up and you had no idea about the it connection you had. was not talked about. Huh. Yeah. Huh. So you have something in common with the other uh, families then of the uh, of the victims. Mm-hmm. Learning about the history long after the family. Yeah. 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 So, I mean. Tulsa and the state of Oklahoma went through a span sometime after like in the 60s and later where they were actively uh, spinning that the race massacre had not occurred. So they didn't allow it to be taught, uh, well, they suppressed its instruction. So my colleague, uh, Scott Ellsworth, in his research, he's an historian, and in his research, he documented faculty that were told they'd be fired if they hmm. interviewed race massacre. Uh, so that was the suppression you referenced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And so it was not just saying, oh, we forgot this happened. It's, it's not that simple. Because if it were that simple, 
it wouldn't have become this mission uh, for the black residents of Tulsa to keep the dream alive, as one of one of uh, the public oversight committee members reminded me. They lived, grew up with the history of knowing something happened and having to hear other people say, probably non-black, but other Tulsans say it didn't happen or that it was black-on-black violence. If you look at the archive microfilm for the newspapers, I don't know if it's the Tribune or the World, but editorials reporting the race massacre were torn off before they microfilmed it. Mm -hmm. And so... uh, Hmm. And then losing some of the vital records, like the cemetery map, and uh, that even at that time, the sheriff or police, so this is a historical thing, had uh, collected as much of the uh, negatives as he could at that time, seized them before people could keep that record. And we only, that's why we have so few images. We have the critical ones, but we have only a few images of. home by per home destruction we just had mainly that panoramic and some decedents mm-hmm. and uh because the images were seized and uh that context of you know not not so much at first even though it was in international papers and it was discussed in the two tulsa two dominant tulsa papers um that as a issue of uh so shameful and requiring reparations to the, you know, let all the Oklahomans and Tulsans get together to help repair uh, Greenwood. And then that went away. Uh, Greenwood was reconstructed by 11 months later. And so that helped uh, in the concept of moving on, but not in the concept of the economic loss. Those were never repaid. The insurance claims were not paid. And so then the history kept going. And then by the suppressing it allowed for a lack of you know timely recourse for the insurance claims because that window has shut Mm -hmm. and um you know that would have been a timely moment you know during the the civil rights era to not bring up that yeah we had the Mm -hmm. race massacre because who would want that any more conflict by uh, reminding people that yeah yeah we raised your neighborhood to the ground killed some of you and um some of you never came back and others, I mean, Tulsa was a boom town, so mm-hmm. there was room for turnover. But, you know, life changed forever. Sorry, we're going to pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. So against that, uh, against that backdrop, too, it seems to me that your work has been a major factor in returning this story to its rightful place, arguably, in people's minds and memories. Right? I mean, I know in this era that the, it is hard for people to accept a truth no matter what, <laughs> but uh, I'm looking forward to at least having this story told even down to the what it, what's left of the identity of the decedents from, based on their remains and what happened to them. I, I think uh, we've learned enough so far to, well, we found the mass, we found the first known mass grave. I, I don't... <clears throat> I don't think it's the only one, but uh, the uh, the the way the coffins are laid out are clearly indicative of having to pack coffins into a space. There, some of them are only that far apart, head to foot, and uh, we may have some stacking, which I'm not looking forward to excavating. <laughs> mm. 
at a very human level, how does it make you feel to be the person who's unearthing, for lack of a better term, but bringing all of this history to light again um, with your own personal connection, but in the even broader sense against what's happening with race relations uh, today in our country? I mean, at a very human emotional level, how, how does that make you feel? I feel blessed. I feel like it's uh, grace that has brought me to this moment. Because uh, I did not plan to become a forensic anthropologist so I could be involved in Tulsa. But fortunately, I'm a forensic anthropologist involved in Tulsa. How do you plan that? This The effect of the investigation is causing uh, connections and uh, unity that I couldn't have predicted. I mean, and personally, uh, I've gained a cousin. Hmm. As a result of this investigation, and uh, technically, I gained some uh, half cousins. There needs to be a more formal recognition of the individuals, and uh, I th I think we'll have that. I mean, we'll have some minimum of that, but I'm hoping it'll be uh, uh, something more obvious uh, to make the the history very permanent. Because you know, I think there'll be future. There'll be other. Uh, events like this that have been hidden that'll be uh, revealed. Mm -hmm. I mean, what is the next phase of your work and what do you hope that will bring to light? So the next timeline is 2021. We had hoped to have something, uh, you know, so remains analyzed in time for the anniversary. But, uh, you know, when skeletal material involved, we're still in the process even now of getting, finding out if we can get an exhumation order because the city of Tulsa needs to act like next of kin mm -hmm. for the uh, individuals in the mass grave because they're completely unidentified. Mm -hmm. Because there's, there's, we didn't even know there was a mass grave there until we found it. And so uh, we there's no law yet there in Oklahoma about how to deal with excavations of that type mm -hmm. with non-Native American and... Um, you mentioned next year being the, the 100th anniversary of the, the massacre. Um, do you foresee do you foresee this uh, being a project that you might have involvement with for the rest of your life for the rest of your career? My actual hope is literally that we can resolve our three known targets before anybody else dies. Mm -hmm. Not that I have any control over that, mm -hmm. but we still have an area called the Canes that's related to an area that we had identified earlier called New Block Park. Both of those areas are near the river. Then the railroad, conveniently located, if as the narratives indicate, you had rail cars loaded with bodies that mm. you had to unload downhill into a burial. And we have uh, an account from a gentleman who was ex-law enforcement who sa he said he saw in a training moment, he was shown uh, images, a box of images from the riot that were, you know, there was someone's secret collection. We can't confirm that collection. But his knowledge of the site is very clear because he had said at the training moment he recognized it. And the officer showing him the images was like, you know, don't uh, 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 talk about that. Hmm, and so, really? he, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. What has been the most um, surprising or unexpected aspect of this project so far for oh, you? It's the unity of those of us working it. Mm -hmm. Because people, we, the collection, we're focused on the, the goal. You know, what's the goal? We're, our goal is to bring truth to the people of Tulsa now, not to uh, pad our egos or get as much, you know, 
will I try and milk some publications out of this? Of course. Mm -hmm. Or whatever other status gains. I would love to see enough funding come in that we get a proper memorial. And uh, But I don't know. That's not, actually not my job. But my job is to keep telling this story and tell it all the way down to the bones so that everyone who learns in a variety of ways can access this history in a permanent fashion. I want to thank you again also for taking the time to join us. It was oh, really welcome. fascinating. I enjoyed it thoroughly. And yeah, I, I, I could sit here and ask you a whole lot more questions. This is Unstoppable Minds, a podcast out of the University of Florida. I'm Dr. Kyla McMullen. And I'm Dr. Jeremy Waysom. Thanks for joining us. Unstoppable Minds is a University of Florida podcast. Season two was produced, developed, and edited by Emily Cardinale and Patricia Vernon, with many thanks to Matthew Abramson and James Sullivan from WUFT. We would also like to thank the UF Office of Strategic Communications and Marketing video team, Brianne Leanne, Wise Clairvoyant, and Brian Sandusky. If you like what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more information about our show and the awesome students, faculty, and staff at the University of Florida by visiting our website at ufl.edu slash unstoppable minds. Until next time, go Gators! <laughs>